0: And good morning. good morning. It's still Easter, last Easter Sunday last Sunday of Easter. so hallelujah. Uh, good morning. My name is uh, Al. Uh, thank you, Nathan, for the introduction. Um, and we've already agreed this morning that if things don't go perfectly smoothly, this is a church full of grace, right? All right, I like that. <laughs> I want to introduce my wife, Jo. Could you say hi? Thank you. Um, Actually, uh, 10 years ago, if you'd said I'd be here as a priest in this time of setting, I would have thought you were rather crazy. But God leads us on an adventure. And... uh, my adventure, I grew up uh, in the Episcopal Church, came to Christ in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. Um, and uh, But then by the time I got to college in Oregon, I was, like many college students, kind of drifting. And uh, then my senior year in college, a couple of fraternity brothers told me about Jesus and introduced me to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I got involved in a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Some of you may have heard of that. Now goes by a whole totally different name, Crew. Uh, <laughs> but that's okay. That's good. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, I, I thought I'd do the Lord a favor. I said, Lord, you can have t- I'll, I'll go to Campus Crusade for two years. Well, the Lord has his little chuckle and says, okay, you know, that's that's the first step. We'll see where this goes. I never made it to the career that I had in mind. Uh, And here we are 48 years later. And uh, for the last uh, 17 years, I've been involved in a ministry called Open Doors. Uh, Some of you may have heard of a book called Gut Smuggler. Anybody? Yeah, so quite a few hands. Good. God Smuggler by Brother Andrew. I read that book my senior year in college. That was one of the first examples of the kind of living by faith that was possible. Well, he started the organization Open Doors, and um, I won't go into all the details. I shared a little bit last night at dinner with um, with Julie and Roger and Fred. But... Uh, Long and short of it is, uh, after September 11, uh, Brother Andrew and I had already gotten acquainted, become friends, and he started calling me and saying, I think God's given me something to say, and would you come and work with me and help me tell the story of what God's doing in the Muslim world? Well, I the next few years, all I can say is, I traveled around the world with Brother Andrew, had all kinds of adventures, came home, wrote books about those adventures, then went back around the world promoting those books because Brother Andrew hated that part of the business. And uh, here we are today. Um, He's now 90, just celebrated his 91st birthday, unable to travel anymore. He's in poor health. Uh, But what he did was he introduced the church in the West to a part uh, of the church, our brothers and sisters, who pay the highest price for following Jesus. And um, you'll probably notice in my sermons in the coming this summer that I'll refer often to the persecuted church because they have had a huge impact in our life. One out of nine Christians today around the world are persecuted just because they're Christians. And... uh, so our ministry goes to them. The first thing we do that people need when they're suffering, when they're in persecution, is to know that they're not alone. So we go. We put our arm around them. We pray for them. We love them. And then we say, what do you need? How, do you, how can we help you stay and be the church in the midst of these difficult circumstances? And, uh, and that's, what, that's what we do. So that's why I go to some crazy places. Uh, Joe's parents uh, pray and say, what are you doing going to Pakistan? Do you know how dangerous it is? Well, yeah, we know how dangerous it is. But if God calls you, how many of you know Matthew 28, 18, 18? What does it say? Go into all the world and make disciples where does it say you have to come back? (laughs) It just says go. Okay. So we go in obedience. And so that's just a little bit of the background. And actually it ties very well into the message I want to give this morning. It's Kind of unusual that we have an Old Testament reading from the book of Acts. But we go with what the, the scriptures are. This is the last Sunday of Easter. And this story, I think, provides us an excellent reminder of the world in which we live. Um, in military, uh, the Wo- World War II, when the invasion on Normandy or Iwo Jima or those different islands, every time the invasion occurred, they took a beachhead. They never were driven off of that beachhead. In fact, the war was won. But the battle continued for quite a while longer. And Easter is what I like to call the beachhead. The, king, the flag of the kingdom of God was established when Jesus rose on Easter Sunday. But the enemy continues to fight. We know, we, you heard in the, the um, epistle reading from Revelation, our commander-in-chief, our king, is coming back. And this time, it's going to be in total victory. But right now, we live in the conflict in the midst of spiritual battle. And that's really important to keep in mind. And I would like to focus on the passage in Acts because it gives us a picture, a glimpse of how we can deal with the spiritual conflict in which we are engaged. We're all engaged in it, one way or another. Um, So the... One thing though I want to mention we are experiencing resistance from the enemy, but there 's an important point to keep in mind: who is our enemy it 's not people. People are not our enemy. You look at this story and you might have thought, well, that jailer he 's my enemy no he 's lost there 's a difference between lostness and and being the, the actual enemy, the the enemy is the devil. Satan is the one that deceives, and he does it. He continues to do it today. He lies, he misleads. He will do anything he can to keep you from following Jesus, or to keep from people from even hearing about Jesus. That has been so important for me to realize as we've gone to various places. Like Gaza, where we have actually sat down and witnessed, given the gospel to leaders of Hamas and Islamic Jihad, where we've been in other places and had a chance to meet with leaders of talent. Why the world looks at them as the bad guys, as the enemy? We say no; they're lost. They need to know they can be released from this prison that they're that they're in, and that's really what this passage in Acts is about. I'd like, us, I'd like to suggest three observations from this passage today. And the first one is that I want us to realize that Paul has authority over the forces of evil. Now, that's not unique to Paul. You and I, we have the same authority. I just mentioned uh, Matthew 28, where Jesus said to go into all the world, make disciples. He precedes that. The first thing he says is, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, we have authority. The devil does not run our lives. He will try and throw us off course. He will try and mess up our plans. But he does not have the authority. We have the authority that was delegated to us By Jesus. Here's the context of the passage. Paul's on his second missionary journey. Earlier on the journey, he had found a young disciple named Timothy, and they are now traveling together. They were prohibited from going into Asia. Paul's plan was to spread the gospel in Asia. So they had to wait for instructions, something we all have to do sometimes. We have to just stop and say, Okay, Lord, that door is closed. I work for a ministry called Open Doors. (laughs) Where's the open door? Finally, they get a vision, go to Macedonia. And so now they wind up in Philippi. And here in the text, it's interesting, uh, up till here, it's been in third person. Now it's in first person. That's because the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, joined the team in Philippi. So what we have here is a first person account. Uh, which is which is good. So in Philippi, Paul wants to find are there any believers here. He hears there's a prayer meeting on Sabbath out uh, on, by the riverside. So he goes, finds there's a small group of women that are meeting. In the Jewish context, you couldn't have an official prayer meeting uh, unless you had ten men. So the women said, "We'll just have a we'll just get together on our own and we'll pray." Um, And there he meets Lydia, a successful businesswoman, who responds to the gospel that uh, Paul is preaching. And she invites him and the team to set up their headquarters in her home. And so Paul begins out of Lydia's home to speak and reach out into the city of Philippi. Along the way, he gets the attention of this demon-possessed Uh, woman. She's kind of the local show in town. Uh, We're told that she had a spirit of divination. Now that was important in the time because the Greeks and the Romans put a great deal of trust in divination. No military commander would go out to battle without first consulting the oracle to find out how the battle might turn out. So the owners of this girl had a lot to gain um, by her supposed gift that she had. But there was a problem. See, the slave girl was distracting Paul from his work. She appears to affirm Paul and point people to the message, but actually the translation could be rendered this way. These men are servants of of the Most High God who proclaimed to you a way of salvation. Nice little twist there. She really isn't helping. She's really confusing people. See, they've all heard that Zeus would be considered the most high god, or Jupiter if you're Roman. And the Roman emperor has actually announced that he's the savior of the people. So while it appears she's, promoting Paul's message, and in fact, she's interfering with a clear proclamation of the gospel. So we can understand why Paul gets a little irritated. He doesn't need the devil's endorsement. He certainly doesn't want this spirit diviner to appear like he's, she's his partner. So at some point, he, <coughs> he realized that she was hindering his God-given mission, And the mission of God always comes first. Based on the word of God, he had the authority to command that spirit to leave the woman, And that's what he did. Now, that sounds a little unusual to us today, especially here in America. We don't run into these kind of situations very often. But my wife and I have actually experienced similar type situations in other contexts. There is a country that we have ministered in quite a bit, and since this is recorded, I'm not going to mention the name, uh, because our brothers and sisters uh, are li- still living in, this, in-, in there, um, but uh, we had a chance once to minister at a pastor's conference, and then um, I preached to about 2,000 people that night, a big gathering. And uh, at the end of my message, I'm giving the invitation. We had two invitations, one for people that wanted to come, home, come forward to, for healing and the other for those who wanted to know more and come to faith in Christ. And They, they would be taken to a separate place. Well, as soon as people got up, this, the leader of our ministry, the security man, comes up and he has a real stern voice look on his face and he comes to me and my wife and he says we're leaving now it's one of those situations where you have seen in the movies where they just shove you out the door and in the van and the wheel starts spinning and you tear out of there and joe and i are looking at what's going on here well they'd gotten a warning that there was a, a serious threat in there Uh, Meanwhile, the priests and pastors are trying to minister to the people and there's this otherworldly screeching going on around the tent. And the bishop, my bishop who ordained me, realized we, we are in spiritual warfare. This is overt. There's nothing covert about this. This was not human screaming. This was demonic activity. So the pastor's gathered around the outside of the tent and commanded the enemy to cease in the middle was a woman who was demon possessed and four women, uh, priests gathered around and cast that out and then the ministry could continue that's part there are parts of the world where this kind of incident is still going on and so we i saw that those bishops, priests, had to exercise the authority that God had given them so that the mission of God could be accomplished. So, uh, that was that's the first thing I wanted us to realize, that we have authority, just like Paul exercised it. However, here's the second point. When we follow the Lord doing his work and... Exercise the authorities given us, there will be opposition. Uh, just because we're doing what God wants doesn't mean everybody around us is going to be going with the same plan. And here's what we see with uh with with Paul from from this story: just because he was doing what God called him to do. He got the anger of the business community because they were, he was interfering with their profit. They went to the authorities. The, they get a mob together. He, they're arrested. Paul and Silas are arrested. Um, they're falsely accused. They're, about the only thing they said that was true was they're, they're Jews. The other things they, they twisted in order to get the attention of the authorities. Um, and then um, the crowd joins in and attacking them. The magistrates tear off the garments of uh, Paul and Silas, beat them with rods. Uh, then, he, then they're thrown in prison. Um, they're put in chains and also fastened these wooden stocks. They were fastened and were in the walls. So that you can imagine their backs are pulp. They're... In this very uncomfortable position, there's no way they're going to sleep. The battle between the kingdom of God and the world is real. And men and women, there are casualties. Easter morning, just seven weeks ago, just before I left for church in Colorado Springs, I get an alert on my phone because of my, our network. I'm, we're always aware that Christmas and Easter are sometimes the most dangerous times for Christians in certain parts of the world. And I relieved, received the alert that two churches were bombed in Sri Lanka, many killed. The battle rages. The enemy is furious that we're advancing the kingdom. And there will be casualties. How are we supposed to respond to persecution? How did Paul and Silas respond? It's not surprising that they couldn't sleep. They were in pain. They were in very uncomfortable position. So they prayed, and they worshiped, and they sang. Apparently loud enough that the other prisoners couldn't sleep either. From what I've read and seen in prisons, I can imagine there were a few loud protests. Would you guys shut up? But it was also a powerful witness. So here's the thing that I think it's important to remember. Following God... And doing his will is not safe. Expect that there will be opposition. One out of nine Christians today pay the highest price for following Jesus. We, uh, as a ministry, um, do an intense on-the-ground survey every year to identify the 50 worst countries for persecution of Christians. Uh, In 2019, when we released it in January... North Korea was number one for the 14th consecutive year. Followed by Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and Pakistan. Used to be, when I first started, Saudi Arabia was one or two. Now, it hasn't gotten any better in Saudi Arabia, and yet they were number 14 on the list this year. So the opposition is not getting less. It's getting worse. Uh, This past Thursday was Ascension Day. Three years ago on Ascension Day in Minya, Egypt, a busload of Christians on their way to an Ascension Day celebration were attacked by ISIS. 29 Christians were killed. As I said to you, our ministry for Joe and I is we go to the church when it's in suffering and persecution. We were there a week later to lead a retreat, our staff. We had about 50 staff in that country. About a quarter of them are from Minya. They knew these people that had been killed. How do you minister in that situation? Um, They didn't need a sermon. Um, We were the only foreigners in that group. We were just there to be with them, to love them, to cry with them, to pray with them. One night, the plan was that Joe and I would just share from our hearts with them uh, and minister to them. But they started singing and praying. And for two and a half hours, that's all they did. All in Arabic. Joe and I didn't know what exactly they were singing or, or praying, but boy, could we feel the spirit of the place. After two and a half hours, they said, would you just pray over us? They didn't need our words. They just needed our love. The next night, what did we do? I took them to the communion table. Translated, the the liturgy was translated in Arabic, so I, they followed what I was doing, English, Arabic. Every time it was, you know, the Lord be with you, they'd respond in, in Arabic. Somehow we, it all worked. It was beautiful. It was it sounded a little bit like, I think, heaven will sound. <laughs> um, but the the pain is real it's 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 not fun suffering the beating hurts it's uncomfortable in prison the loss of friends and loved ones is devastating and yet one thing that amazes my wife and i is we have discovered real joy in the midst of that persecution i can't explain it i know it's a fruit of the spirit but I see more joy there often than I do here in the freedom that we have. And that joy is a powerful tool which God uses, and that leads to my third point, and that is God changes lives in the midst of the conflict. The kingdom of God is growing. In the midst of Paul and Silas's suffering, through their witness, God was working on that jailer's heart. And now, it's possible, I think it might even be likely, that the jailer had heard about, the, maybe even heard one of Paul's sermons earlier. Certainly had probably heard of the servant girl and was aware of, of what she was saying. But... As the jailer, he was personally responsible for all the prisoners. If any escaped, he could actually be executed. So when the earthquake miracle occurred that released the chains of the prisoners and unlocked the doors, the jailer believed his life was ruined. So his thinking, better to take his own life than to suffer from Roman justice. But Paul, as as we heard, stops the jailer. No one has escaped. Everyone is accounted for. And then the second miracle occurs. The jailer comes to Paul and says, very simply, what must I do to be saved? He's not looking to the Roman emperor for salvation. He doesn't understand what salvation is, but he knows this is the place he has to go. And I love the answer. It's so simple. Believe. Believe. In the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your household will be saved. Uh, it's nice that we have all of these plans of salvation, and we have all, you know, the, I learned the four spiritual laws, and the Roman road, and, and they're all good tools. But in essence, that's, all it, that's what it comes down to. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And the jailer did. And a church was born. You know, uh, there have been more Muslims coming to Christ in the last 20 years than in the previous 1400 years of Islam. In the midst of the persecution, and about 40 of the 50 worst countries of persecution are Islamic countries, that's where the church is growing most rapidly. One Muslim country uh, in the Middle East has at least 500,000 converts from Islam. Many of them are Anglican, by the way. But they don't worship openly. <laughs> 95% of the Anglican church in that country are converts from Islam, and most of them have to meet in secret. If they show up and go to, the, go to, the, go to a church, the, the uh Um, authorities will be on their doorstep the next day. What are you doing there? Why are you going there? You're a Muslim. You should not be going there. So God's on the move. There's some incredible things happening. My wife and I have a chance to teach marriage seminars uh, in Islamic contexts. And we were doing some seminars in Indonesia. And in one of the seminars, there was this man sitting in the very back, very quiet, very quiet, Um, and I got to know him. I found out at one time he was a member of the most extreme Islamic group in Indonesia, and he'd become a fundamentalist, and he had gone to Ambon, where there's a strong Christian community, to wipe out the church. But one day as they're burning a church, and I've been in Ambon, I've seen the burned-out churches there, he saw these children running out of church, this burning church, and he said, something's wrong here. Why are we doing this? He had two visions, and the second one led him to a, certain, a different island where he's walking, and a man comes out the door and says, Mulana, that was his name, I've been waiting for you. You see, Jesus had also met the, this man. He was a pastor. And he says, I want you to come in. I have a gift for you. And he gave Mulana a Bible. And Mulana read the Bible. And he came to faith in Christ. And he's been living in secret, moving from place to place ever since. Working with small groups of disciples. This is the miracle that's going on. In the midst of persecution. In the midst of suffering. In fact, at the... Uh, another one of those seminars in um, uh, Indonesia, there was an imam, an active practicing imam in the seminar, a secret believer. <laughs> Don't ask me to explain it. I, I told our Egypt director once, I says, you won't believe me. I believe what happened. I met this imam, and he's a, a believer in Christ. He reads the Bible, and he shares the Bible with his disciples in this mosque. And I thought he'd say, wow, that's incredible. He says, we have a bunch of those in Egypt. <laughs> How do you explain this? God's, God's on the move in the midst of the warfare. That's what I mean. The beachhead is established. The victory is assured. We just have to be obedient to do our part in advancing the kingdom of God. And then he's coming back in a victor- to, to be victorious. So what does that mean to us here at uh, Christ Our Hope? I think, first of all, Psalm 97. Recognize who's really king. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. That's an incredible perspective. You, O Lord, are high, most high over all the earth. When I meet with our staff in Syria or Iraq or Lebanon or Egypt, one of the things that encourages them is, He, Jesus is on the throne. It's not Bashar Assad in Syria who's tearing that country apart. It's not Vladimir Putin who's causing all kinds of trouble there. Jesus is, and we just, we have to get that perspective in our mind. Second, we have to remember, I've said it already a couple times, our king is coming back. Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon. Surely I'm coming soon. Now, I struggle with that, that word soon. And maybe for another sermon, I'll share a little bit of how God's shown me that his perspective of soon is not exactly the same as my perspective of soon. A thousand years in his sight is like a day or like a watch in the night, three hours. So the what seems to us to be unending is not all that long for him. He's coming back. Then we are invited to invest our energies in service of our king. This is the invitation to join our commander-in-chief in fulfilling his agenda of advancing and establishing his kingdom on earth. And that's why I'd like to close with the look at the gospel prayer the great high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, as we read. What is the heart and desire of our commander-in-chief, of our king? It is, first of all, the unity of the church. And you know, one thing that persecution does is it destroys denominational barriers. I've seen miracles of Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Pentecostals coming together. Persecution destroys all of that. The prayer of our Lord is that we would be one. And unfortunately, persecution seems to be the one thing that tears down those barriers between us. I don't like that very much, but that just seems to be the way it goes. Jesus prays that we would see his glory And you know, it's revealed in how we respond to suffering. Look at how Paul and Silas responded. Who was glorified? Jesus was glorified. Today we see the persecuted church responding likewise to suffering. It's the most powerful witness. That's why the church is growing faster in persecution than it is here in America or Europe. Then Jesus wants to see children added to his family in his prayer. He says, I don't pray just for these disciples of mine. I pray for those that they will be witness to that will come because of their testimony. And that should be our desire in prayer too. And we want to get ready for his return. It could be any time. It could be today. It could be next week. It could be next year. Soon he's coming back. So that's the challenge of Easter. This last Sunday of Easter the Sunday before Pentecost. Let us recognize the authority we have because of the resurrection. Let's understand that the enemy is fiercely resisting that uh, invasion that God has made. But let's also recognize that the victory is assured. Jesus is drawing people to himself, and we are having the privilege of participating in his work. He is coming back. This time he will not be humiliated. It will be in glory. Let's be about preparing for that great moment by serving him in the great adventure, the great harvest of those who are coming to faith in Christ. Okay? Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, privilege that we have of worshiping and freedom. We know that not so many of our brothers and sisters around the world are not able to, and yet they still faithfully serve you and witness for you. Lord, we lift them up and pray that we would be inspired by their example to take the authority you've given us to go and fulfill the part of the mission you've given to each one of us in this room. So thank you for this church, for Christ our hope. You are our hope, Lord Jesus. And I pray that this church would be one that would be strengthening us for the mission ahead and equipping us to go and be your light, be your uh, faithful witnesses wherever you take us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us uh, stand and recite together.